you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. The following program is a Drop D podcast production. Darkmyths.org and the Opus Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast. Featuring your host, Rob Clark. Where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Loon Gummin Podcast. This is episode number 152. Today, I got a special guest joining the show, the author of the new book, Malcontent, Lee Harvey Oswald's Confession by Conduct, Mr. Sean DeGrilla. Welcome, Sean. Hey, Rob. Thank you. It's quite an honor. Thank you very much. Hey, well, thanks for coming on the show, and thanks for sending me a copy of your book to check out. Um, As you know, we might butt some heads during this conversation. I'm a diehard conspiracy theorist, and this is pretty <laughs> much uh, putting putting Lee Harvey Oswald in the electric chair. But <laughs> all right, let, yeah, all right, let's do it. Yeah, let's get into it, man. So, uh, look, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this case. First of all, well, uh, I grew up in Dallas uh, in their 80s and early 90s, and uh, one day my parents and I were having dinner. And my dad pointed down to, over to uh, Delia Plaza and said, hey, uh, that's where Kennedy was shot. I had no idea what he was talking about. And he goes, some pe- I said, what happened? And he goes, well, some people believe it was Oswald in that building there. And some people believe somebody fired from the grassy knoll. And right then and there, my, my curiosity was piqued. And I had to find out everything I could about it. And since I lived there, it was just a perfect um, opportunity. Well, definitely, definitely. That's cool. So what? What sparked you? I mean, I know you have a law enforcement background. So what, what kind of sparked you to take a look at the case from, from this angle? Well, as a kid, well, I know I met with Penn Jones Jr., witnesses. I was very impressionable. So I always believed there was a conspiracy. Uh, as I got older, I started to think for myself. And the catalyst was when I joined the police academy and started interacting with, I learned criminal behavior. Um, and during my arrests and talking to uh, people I've arrested and just uh, the life experience as a deputy sheriff, I came to realize that I made some comparisons, some parallels between Oswald's behavior and behavior of criminals that I came into contact with every day. So um, that really started me down the path to looking at his behavior and his words, which 
there have been several books about that, but no one's really um, gone into, especially his computer voice stress analysis. So I wanted to use my tools as a law enforcement officer to add a kind of a unique flavor to this because there's only been a handful of authors who are law enforcement officers that have written books. All right, so we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff here today. You know, it's not just not just going to be the the computer voice stress analysis. So give everybody uh, your website so they can kind of, if they want to pause it here and go check it out and, and kind of get an overview of what, what exactly we're going to be talking about here today. Sure. It's SeanDegrilla.com. And on my website, I have, I believe, all the charts from my book and a lot of the photos from my book as well. So it's on there. And also on Facebook, I have Malcontent uh, Facebook page as well. Great. And while we're at it, just tell everybody where they can get a copy of your book. Right now it's on Amazon and Barnes & Noble website. And hopefully Barnes & Noble will be carrying it shortly. I should hear something from them soon. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So let's get into it, man. Uh, let's talk about some of the pre-assassination behavior of Lee Harvey Oswald that made you think that he might have been a little suspect. Well, you know, Oswald liked to lie. That's what he did a lot. If he wasn't lying, he was being surreptitious in uh, the things he did and the things he said. So his application to the book depository, there were errors on that. Um, but what really was keen for me was uh, immediately after the assassination. For example, I, I was able to locate in the Warren Commission volumes his clipboard he used to put his orders on to fill orders for the day. That was found December 2nd, um, hidden about 20 feet away from where the rifle was hidden. There were no orders on that clipboard at all. And his Roy Truly, the book depository supervisor, said he did a good day's work. But on the morning of November 22nd, he hadn't filled a single order. So it's things like this that started me to pique my curiosity. For example, he didn't stick around to give a written or verbal statement to law enforcement. Within three minutes, he was out the door. Uh, and he was the only employee that I'm aware of that did so. I think James Jarman may have not been present as well. But I believe he came back. I think he, I think you're right. I think he went up to Houston Street for a little bit, but I believe he did come back. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, also the only one that was uh, was gone. But, you know, the whole point of his behavior was this. Would you flee the scene of a crime? Well, yeah, you might if you're scared. You know, you don't want to get shot. You're nervous. You don't know what's going on. Yeah, you might flee the scene. I've seen that happen in my law enforcement career. But would you flee the scene? Would you change your appearance? Would you arm yourself? Would you kill a police officer? Would you attempt to kill your arresting police officers? Would you answer some questions but not others? So all this stuff, what, 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 these were not the, uh, the actions of someone who's innocent. Either he was being framed or he was guilty. Right. And I talk a little bit about the arrest contrast when he was arrested in New Orleans and his, his behavior after he was arrested in Dallas. Because that's, that, that's kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, there are totally two different things. It's like night and day. In New Orleans, uh, he didn't fight police officers. He willingly was arrested. And when he went down, when he was booked uh, in the jail, he refused to pay his bail. He wanted to stay in jail. He even requested uh, an interview by the FBI. Now, 
Why did he do that? I think probably he wanted to see what the FBI knew about him because they know he had been interrogated by the FBI or questioned by the FBI before. So uh, maybe he was trying to play a cat and mouse game with the FBI. But so in New Orleans, he is willingly arrested. He doesn't flee. He doesn't try to hurt anybody. He um, makes very few omissions. For example, he said that he and his wife met in Fort Worth instead, of course, we know it was Russia. But other than that, he was mostly honest with the FBI in forthcoming. Then you have Dallas, where he's you know, shooting at a police officer. He's running away from the scene. He, is, um, he refuses to cooperate for the most part. So you have a complete dichotomy of you know, behavior, and it's very compelling, uh, in my eyes anyways. Yeah, I always found it interesting. You know, okay, so you figure, okay, say Oswald did it. Right. Say he's got, he's planned enough to, he's going to take a rifle into the school book depository and he's going to shoot the president with the rifle and then he's going to make his escape. Why would you not bring your handgun with you instead well, of having to go back and get it? You know, you're right, Rob. My, my take is this. We have to put ourselves back in his mindset. Right. You know, I've done presidential uh, or dignitary uh, details before. People don't know whether or not they're going to be searched prior to entering the business, whether or not they're going to be allowed into that business at all. So, you know, Oswald had the rifle wrapped up securely, wrapped it nice and tight in that paper bag. I don't, you know, and he held it in such a way where he wasn't holding it parallel to the earth; it was perpendicular. So it made it look like it was something other than what it was. I think he felt he might be searched or patted down before he went in or uh, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't think he was thinking that far ahead. I think he was very incredulous that he's able to enter the building unfettered, go hide the rifle and do what he was doing for the rest of the, of the morning. I don't think he really thought that far ahead. I thought maybe you know, it's possible he thought he could be found out before the shooting or he would be shot at during the assassination attempt or, you know, a whole, it's a big mystery. We don't, we don't know why he did what he did or what he was thinking. So, yeah. And likely we never will. I mean, but we can make some good guesses. And that's all the, that's all they're going to be like my interpretation is my interpretation of it. You know, there are going to be those who disagree or agree with it, but from my experience, this is what I think happened. Gotcha. Well, let's, let's get, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Texas theater, the actual arrest. Right. And, and just analyze his behavior during all that. Well, in a nutshell, you know, he I think after he left the rooming house and he waited at the bus stop, the northbound Beckley bus stop, I think he was just trying to figure out what he's going to do next. Once he realized that the police weren't waiting for him at his rooming house, he didn't know what to do. I think either a library, which he loved to go to, or a theater would offer a perfect place for him just to lay low for a while and kind of think of what he's doing. But, you know, when you're turning it back towards, you know, when we, when everyone, we all, we all done this before you hear sirens, you, you see a police car, an ambulance, everybody turns and looks to see what's going on. What are the police doing? Where's this ambulance going? Oswald was the exact opposite. Oswald turns his back and kind of recedes into the store awning a little bit to conceal himself. Uh, Johnny Brewer was just the opposite, like what we do, is we're kind of curious. Hey, what are the cops doing around here? What's, what's going on here? Oswald was the opposite. And then he goes in without paying. Uh, and then he sits in a dark theater by himself um, towards the back of the theater. And then when cops, the police come, 
he says, this is it. You know, he had to know. I've had guns pulled on me before. People know if you pull a gun on a police officer, more than likely you're going to be shot. That's just the right. way it is. Right. And I think what happened was there were so many officers on him coming from behind him into the sides that he didn't have a chance to, once the gun misfired, he didn't have a chance to really do anything else because they were on him. That was it. Normal people don't do that. Right. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, just one small mistake. Like, if if he would have just kept walking down the street instead of slinking into that store opening. Of course. But then, you know, it could have been totally different. It, it could have been. Now, obviously, they, they would have put two and two together eventually. They would have found his rifle. Uh, it, it would have taken longer. But you're absolutely right. But, you know, Jefferson Boulevard and all of Oak Cliff was swarming with officers. You know, I've responded to and I've seen a deputy killed. And so I know that when you have a shooting, you're getting a response from all the surrounding agencies. And that's what was happening. So you know, sooner or later, it was going to happen. I think he did. He was just, you know, doing the best he could with the circumstances that he presented himself with. So do you think, just from having law enforcement experience, yeah. um, I always wondered this. Do you think, I'm just wondering why, say, J.D. Tippett would have been, A, in Oak Cliff, mm-hmm. and B, rolling up on people walking down the street and and, you know, just seeing who they were or, or something like that. I mean, was that like a common practice back then as far as when you're looking for a suspect, maybe? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we'll never know. Yeah. However, I can tell you that we have big events here in the Orlando area that all the cops are going to it, right? So no matter – even they're supposed to be somewhere, everyone wants to see what's going on. Here you have the president shot. Every All the officers want to go and be a part of it. They right. want to see what's going on. So it's not – unusual for most of the officers in that area to head on down there because they want to be a part of it. They want to say, yes, I was there. I saw it. I helped out, whatever. But once again, there are no officers around for bank robberies, car crashes, um, burglaries, 911 emergencies, medical emergencies. So Tippett had been on long enough where he didn't want to get involved in that kind of stuff. He was happy being where he was. He was an hour and a half away or so from ending his shift and having Saturday and Sunday off. Right. And now there's two uh, schools of thought. Some people believe Oswald was walking eastbound on 10th Street, and some believe he's walking westbound. Um, when Oswald got into the bus after the assassination, his ex-landlord said he looked like a maniac. So maybe the way Oswald was walking, maybe his hair was disheveled, he was overdressed, probably was walking uh, quickly. Right. Uh, maybe... Or perhaps he was walking towards Tippett, saw the police officer, and turned the other way. I've had people do that to me many, many times, and I checked out with every single one of them. Right. Because if someone, if someone sees you and they about face and turn, they're up to something. Right. So there are all these possibilities, and I believe that's probably what happened. I think when Tippett was talking to him, Oswald probably gave uh, – well, I, I don't want to speculate, but something Oswald said or did made Tippett – get out of that police car instead of saying, okay, sir, have a good day. You know? Right. So something he said, we'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. I was figured that most, you know, the most of the police would have been either at, at the destination where Kennedy was going, you know, to do a speech or it would have went to Parkland hospital to accompany, you know, the, the shooting victims 
and provide security, or they would have been on scene investigating the school book depository. And it just so happens you know, that it seems like this one officer that is not in these places just happens to roll up on the right just, You're right, but it wasn't just him. And yeah. he'd been on for 10 years, almost 11, I think I believe almost 11 years. So he knew better. He was more mature than some of, some of the other officers. Wasn't necessarily a go-getter. He just did his job and that was it. And, you know, you still have other people to serve besides the motorcade. You have this, you know, the, the citizens of Dallas still deserve to be served by officers. So there had to be some that stayed back and did what they're supposed to be doing. And yeah, it's, you know, it's a coincidence that Oswald just happened to start rocking down the street that Tippett was on. I mean, that's what a coincidence is. And right. I don't see any evidence for anything else, any reliable evidence other than Oswald was trying to figure out what he's going to do next. Yep. All right. So let's get into a little bit of his defiant attitude after he's arrested. So we get him out of the Texas theater. You know, we've, we've all seen the, the famous picture of him coming out of the front of the yep. Texas theater looking not too happy. <laughs> so that's on my cover of my book, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And uh, I think Paul Bentley's chomping on a cigar, looking pretty that's damn great. happy himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And there's always been some, you know, allegations of what he actually said in the police car after his arrest on the way to the station. You know, that when they're asking, you know, hey, you know, they're looking through his wallet. Hey, you know, are you Lee Harvey Oswald? Or are you Alex Hydell? And he's, I don't know. You're the cop. You figure it out. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's not what, you know, I can tell you that 99.9% of the people I've come at, well, I've, I've arrested or been accused of crimes are guilty. However, there are those that are innocent and those who are innocent. Like, are you crazy? I want to speak to your supervisor. You know, what are you doing? Let me talk to somebody else. This is wrong. Get somebody down here. He didn't say any of that stuff. He was smirking. Oh, a police officer been killed? You know, or, uh, you know, what's your name? You figure it out. Right. Some of the effect of you. And then there's different interpretations of what he said, but essentially, as you know, you're the cop, you figure it out. Well, that's not what an innocent person would say. I, I can tell you that if I've been accused of something. I'd be like, hey, yeah, my name is so and so. This is where I live. I, I just here to watch a movie. This, this is what I was doing. But, you know, beforehand, he pulled out a gun, you know, that kind of stuff. So you have to put everything, it's the totality of the circumstances. It's right. not just that conversation in the backseat of the patrol car. Uh, it's other things as well. But that's not what an innocent person would say. All right, let's let's move on to his his questioning by, um, well, various people, I guess, once he's actually in custody at the station and he's answering questions. Um, to me, it seems like he's he's being a little more forthright once he's at the station. He's telling them the truth. Hey, I lived in Russia. Right. You know, I, I I don't know what you're talking about with this curtain rod stuff. And, uh, you know, I brought my lunch. That's it. Um, I, I did see somewhere where he had stated, you know, how big was your lunch sack? And and um, something, he says something about it's hard to find just the right bag to fit your lunch right. or something, something <laughs> that. He, That's crazy. He said he put his sack, you know, I think he said next to him in his either next to him or in his lap. I forget without looking back at it. But yeah, so he would answer questions. He would answer the softball questions that had nothing to do, had no criminal, um, had nothing to do with his criminal case against him. So he talked about Russia. He talked about the cars over there, the refrigerators, that kind of stuff to some of the detectives. Right. But when it came time to, you know, to asking, you know, pertinent questions about his, you know, the backyard photographs, for example, that 
Marina Oswald admitted to taking that clearly show Lee Harvey Oswald with the rifle and the pistol and the periodicals, um, then he would make up something ridiculous like, oh, he wouldn't answer it, or he'd say, oh, that's my head superimposed on somebody else's body. I've never seen those before. So the softball questions that meant nothing to him that would not lead to the police gathering any sort of uh, criminal intelligence on him to build their case, he would answer them. But anytime you'd ask him a question about where exactly he was during the assassination or uh, that kind of thing, he wouldn't answer. Or, you know, about, you know, the IDs he had on him, the two forms of ID, he wouldn't answer about that. He says, you found it, you know more about it than I do. Right. Well, uh, you know, that's, that's not how you would react to something like that. Well, what's your take on the backyard pictures as far as them being authentic? I mean, I, I don't know if you've looked into the, the photographic analysis of, the, of this, these backyard photographs. There was a study uh, several years ago. I don't have it in front of me now, but they've conclusively proven, yes, it was Lee Harvey Oswald. Marina remembered taking them. Uh, in fact, Marguerite Oswald testified that they actually destroyed some of them, including one of them where he's holding the rifle above his head. So, yeah, there's a, yeah, another pose that we've never seen, and we'll probably never see that. We haven't found the negatives of that. So, absolutely, they're, they're real. If you get into these are faked, then yes, you have a massive conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. Uh, but all the analysis that I have seen, including the one several years ago, states that, yes, these are authentic. Even Marina Oswald, who now believes there's a conspiracy, not because of what she's seen, but what because she's been told by... Uh, those in the, JF, in the conspiracy community admitted, yes, I took these pictures. So uh, to me, there's no question about their authenticity. Well, I think she's flip-flopped over the years to where I, I took one picture or I, you know, some, something to that effect. And it was right. with Robert Oswald's camera. It wasn't with the, the reflex camera or whatever it was supposed to be. But her story's changed over the years as well. And It has, but here, here's another point. Well, first of all, anything Marina says, you have to take with a grain of salt, especially <laughs> nowadays. Yeah. But back then, I went to the primary sources. I have the 26 volumes of Warren Commission, so I went back to her testimony. What did she say? What did, you know, you know, uh, Marina and Lee is a great book, and that was uh, researched uh, after the Warren Commission, and she admitted taking these pictures. I believe there's tests where they took pictures from the Imperial Reflex camera, and that's proven. It came from those. It came from that camera. So just like any witness. You know, people are human. Cops are human. You know, we have different takes or interpretations of, what, of how certain events occurred. But I have no doubt at all that they're, they're authentic. Absolutely none. What are your feelings? And I'm, this doesn't necessarily yeah. have to relate to the book at all. But I'm just wondering, you know, with your experience, how did you view the Dallas Police Department's investigation of this case? How, how do you think they handled it? Well, with any investigation, there were mistakes made, no doubt about it. I can tell you that we've had several high-profile cases, the sheriff's office here in the Orlando area, and we make mistakes. In fact, we make mistakes on a daily basis. There's no doubt about that. You know, whether it's DUIs or any type of criminal case, mistakes are ha happen. Um, but you have to – you can't compare 2019 law enforcement practices with 1963. It just does not work. You know – when I look at something of what they did with their, their, their man handling some of the evidence, I just cringe at that because that's not how you're supposed to do things. But back then, things were different. The educations were different. The mentality was different. 
Um, I went part of my book for Malcolm, part of my research for Malcontent is I got a 1969 Dallas police manual and I went back and said, okay, how were things done back then? And there is very little guidance, if any, when it comes to some of the allegations that are made about the malfeasance of the um, Dallas police department. I think, I think the Dallas police learned a lot from when the FBI came in and kind of took over the investigation, you know, they learned a lot about how to treat evidence, you know, as far as chain of custody and, and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, how to interrogate their suspects, maybe a little better, um, what to do with them, what to do with the evidence, what to do with the scene. Well, well, two things, first of all, okay. Uh, crime scene evidence. There was no crime scene manual. I can, I could not find one in my investigation, but, uh, Pete Barnes, and I have this in my book, Malcontent, was asked about, hey, how do you learn about fingerprinting? And he said that they went out with older officers and the older street cops showed them how to dust for prints and how to lift them with you know latent tape. With, with tape. And that's how they did it. It was basically on-the-job training. A lot, you know, CSI was not around back then. So uh, you have to put yourself back in a 1963 mindset. So you, know, you look at something now like, oh my God, it looks so, so archaic. And it was. But that's how business was done. Now, it may be different in L.A. or it could be different in New York at that time. But in Dallas, that was the acceptable practice. They absolutely learned a lot from this. And they have egg on their face because, you know, you can't justify some of that. You know, they should, you know, they should have recorded the interrogation. Somebody should have said, man, this is historic. We should go find a tape recorder somewhere. Right. Nobody, stepped, nobody stepped up. I'm not excusing what they did, but you have to understand what they did. For um, interrogations, uh, there was no policy that I found for interrogations. I did see some in-service training, which is training officers go through throughout the year that they kind of brush up on their skills. And the University of uh, Oklahoma put on uh, interrogation training for Dallas officers. I contacted them. They found one of the professors at that time, but they had no training materials left over because that was from the 50s. So right. that was – um. Well, it's not just to excuse the Dallas police. I mean, you have the FBI there. You have the Secret Service there interrogating them. And nobody uh, no. seemed to make the call to, hey, maybe should we, we should record this. I mean, you know, right. And they had and, the resources. And, and they did. And it was a different day. It's a different time, a different age. And they should have done it. I'm not saying they you – and know, I'm not excusing them. They should have done it. And unfortunately, we've lost that for posterity. That will, We don't have it. Um but it's just the way things were done back then. Of course, now it's gone. You know, the spectrum, is, you know, it, the pendulum has swung all the way to the other side, where there's so much liability that now police, you know, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. That's the way law enforcement is now. You know, body cameras, vehicle cameras, um, that kind of thing. So uh, it's different nowadays. But you also got have to think about the court rulings for lineups, for showups. Um, for Miranda, that stuff didn't come out yet. There was a flurry of Supreme Court rulings in uh, at the end, towards the end of the 60s, uh, that dictated now how police shall and shall not conduct themselves, especially in relationship to prisoners. So um, it was just a different time, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you can believe, I don't know if you if you ever heard uh, Bill Frazier talk about his fritz interrogation when right. when fritz came in there and slapped a uh confession and writing down in front of him and told him to sign it or he was gonna punch him in the face or something something of that nature 
Um, yeah, I see their techniques needed a little uh, <laughs> a little more couth, but I mean, like I said, back then there really wasn't a lot of outlining about it. And you know, from what I've read, you know, Fritz had a had a hell of a uh, a record, you know, as far as getting convictions. That's true. And um, when I was talking to someone in the police department who knew of Fritz, they, you know, a lot of officers didn't like him. They respected him because of his um, tenure and experience in the PD. But a lot of them didn't like him or get along with him. And, you know, it, it was just a different way of doing things back then. Um, and uh, it's, it's amazing that that kind of undocumented state of policing would go on. It's not surprising, though, I should say, because uh, we've seen more and more of that as I was was dealing with this uh the research for this book yeah now let's get into a little bit about lee harvey oswald and his representation <laughs> um, yeah that's right and then maybe talk a little bit about uh john apt well john apt was the uh, lead it was the premier attorney for the communist party usa um and he defended he was well known for his this uh defense of people accused of violating the Smith Act, which essentially said, in part, that you must register as a communist and that you cannot hold federal jobs if you were a communist. And basically, it was, it was discrimination, is what it was, uh, based, based on your political ideology. So when Oswald asked for an attorney, he asked for APT, and he even spelled it, A-B-T. And when he was allowed phone calls eventually, he did make phone calls to APT, but he was um, on vacation in Kent, kind of get in his cabin for the weekend and was unable to get a hold of him. He even had um, Ruth Payne make, try to uh, get a hold of Apt as well. Well, didn't so, they, didn't, a, didn't some lo- local lawyer offer to be his counsel and he turned it down? The head, of the, the head of the Dallas Bar Association came there just to make sure that Oswald's rights are being protected and is there anything he can do. And uh, Oswald assured him that yes, his rights are being protected and that he has already requested an attorney. When Robert Oswald visited Lee in jail, Robert volunteered to get him a local attorney, and he, Lee said, no, I want this one. He was very emphatic he wanted uh, Apt for his, attor- for his attorney. Oh. Yeah. He said if he couldn't get Apt, he might get somebody from the uh, ACLU. Right. But uh, in the interim, he wanted Apt because he was – now, what did Apt represent? He represented the Communist Party of the United States of America. Right. That's what he was known for. That wasn't just maybe a side gig he did. That's what he did. So that's another thing. You know, why why would you want that attorney? Why would you want somebody? You know, no, that's you know there are plenty. You know, um, F. Lee Bailey. It could be, it could have been you know it could have been anybody, but no, he wanted this guy. Hmm. Well, since since you mentioned that, it made me think of <clears throat> get into a little bit about how Oswald's behavior to to Robert, to Marina, to his mother, after he's arrested, when he can speak with them privately, I, I'm assuming, um, without being overheard or recorded, um, and, and and then get into a little bit about um, maybe his 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 defiance or his or his thoughts, you know, until the very end. Well, Robert Oswald made the comment uh, in his book that. The Lee he was talking to was not the Lee that he knew. It was not his brother. Not saying it was an imposter, of course. And it's a it's double. Saying, it's a yeah, double. Yeah, oh boy, here we go. 
There, there it <laughs> it's is. Been Harvey. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Uh, you know that it wasn't you know, Lee. Even Marina said if Lee was innocent, he would be protesting up and down. He'd be make such a scene, but he was resigned to the fact that this is what was going on. And so Marina herself said that she knew that Lee was guilty based on his own actions, that he wasn't making these protestations anymore. Um, something else that's interesting is he didn't bring up his family to Lee. He's got two little girls and a wife, and he was very divorced from that situation up until Robert brought it up to him. So what about your, what about your kids? Oh, you know, uh, they're at the Ruth Paines. They'll, they'll take care of them. You know, so he was just in, in, a, in a different zone. And Marina and Robert, probably the two people who knew him the best, said that was not the way Lee was, was usually would act. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, you know, like, like I said, not just one thing does it, but when you add everything together, the totality of the circumstances, you know, one thing by itself means nothing. Maybe even ten things by themselves mean nothing, but when you have when you have these elements, oh, you know, compounding each other. For me, anyways, as a cop, I'm like, yeah. And if you understand or try to, anyways, study Lee Harvey Oswald, <laughs> you would understand. Man, nobody can make him do anything. Uh, you know, if if he was right, he was right. If he was wrong, he was wrong. And they knew by his actions that no, he was just he just he he was guilty of something. Yeah, I mean, just well, just as a father, I mean, and, and you could probably step into these shoes as well. Yep. How how you could imagine yourself? Okay, you you already have a li- a little girl. Right. You you just had a baby. Right. Okay. You know, maybe your marriage isn't the greatest. Maybe things are tough. <laughs> but damn, I mean, what <laughs> what would possess somebody to throw all that away just for an I- a statement of ideology? I just that's, you're right, and it's hard for you know. There are some things that only the people who do them understand, right? And that we'll never know. But he was leading a miserable life. From all accounts, he was poor. He had a common laborer's job. His education was very minimal. Um, no friends. Demore Silts had moved back to Haiti earlier that year, so you know he. It's just what did he have to lose? I think he was very. I don't know if he had any sort of psychosis. I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, so I can't, I can't, I don't know. But he was looking, for, I think he was just looking for a way out. I think he was done with, done with his life. I believe he felt that due to his notoriety that his kids would be taken care of uh, one way or another. And they were. <laughs> and absolutely right. And he was right about that. And I think that, I think he was thinking of himself more than anything else. Because I, you know, I have three kids, small kids myself, and I, I couldn't imagine doing this, but I'm not in Oswald's shoes. You know, right. We lead totally divergent lives, so I, I, I just don't know. Yeah. Um, so, sheer so, desperation. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, that's what it seems like. I mean, it has to be like a, some kind of a where you think that you have no other option whatsoever. But I just can't imagine being in that being in that place. And it doesn't seem to me like he had hit. I mean, maybe he had. Uh, you know, hit rock bottom, but you know, I, it's just it's so hard to speculate. Well, it, it is, and it, it is all speculation. You're right. You know, I think he was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Bottom line, and this opportunity presented itself, and he was going to see if he could pull it off. 
I mean, any there's you know, the the events of November twenty second is like a chain link fence. You one little link is gone and the whole thing collapses. So you know, he could have been searched on the way inside. He could have been no, they could have gotten the car could have broken down. Buell's car, any any number of things could have happened. But it was just one of these happenstances of history. So let's get into one of the more imp- what I think is the more interesting things that you, yeah. you you brought up, and that is immediately after Oswald is shot in the basement, right. what happens? Well, Detective Combest, uh, Graves, and Lavelle drag him back into the jail office. Um, they unhandcuff him, and while and then Ruby, coincidentally, is kind of is is right nearby, uh, laying near him as well. And they get Ruby and they shuffle him off to uh, the interrogation room. Oswald is dying. And Combest testifies that he knew he, Oswald was dying and that he asked Oswald, do you have anything to say? Basically, this is the last chance to say anything. Do you have anything to say? And he shook his head no. Uh, later on, he tells Anthony Summers that Lee Harvey Oswald displayed a clenched fist salute. So after the 1968 Olympics, when the USA medal winners stood on that platform with their medals on and held out the clenched fist salute. That was when it came into the public consciousness. That's when people recognized it. And that, that became when the Black Panthers adopted that symbol as their own. Now, you know, Bernie Sanders does it a lot. You've seen him. I've seen him do it on TV. I've seen Trump a couple of times with a picture like that. So it is a common symbol used to signify unity. Whether that unity is, you know, against alleged police brutality or communism or socialism or, you know, uh, equality of the sexes or the races, whatever it is, it's a symbol of unity. Uh, But back then, fight, you know, exactly right. Well, back then, didn't mean any of those things because it didn't happen yet. Right. (laughs) So it was it was a symbol used commonly for socialists. And Oswald read a lot. And he knew that there's, there's no other way he there's no other way he would know about that. So when Detective Compass asked him, "Do you have anything to say?" He shook his head no, and he raised his hand up in a clenched fist salute, which he, which he recognized years later as a clenched fist salute, and then he lost consciousness. And when I read Compass's testimony, I was trying to reconcile whether he was telling the truth or not. And I was sitting at my desk, and I'm looking at pictures and I'm just looking, 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 and all of a sudden it just hit me. I looked down and saw the picture of Oswald being dragged on the stretcher into the ambulance in the uh, Dallas police basement and his right fist is still clenched in that clenched fist salute. Uh, not only that, during there's a picture taken and published in my book that shows the ambulance arriving at Parkland Hospital and Oswald still has that fist in his clenched fist salute. So that's you know, in my mind, that's photographic evidence that proves that Oswald gave a clenched fist salute as his dying declaration. He did that rather than to say, hey, tell my kids, you know, my wife and kids, I love them, you know? Right. Or, no, you know, Oswald was an atheist, but it could have been your, your come to Jesus time. It could have been anything. He refused all of that. And he died giving the clenched fist salute. And I don't think you can get any more hardcore than that. I mean, to put that, your ideology above your wife and your kids as you know your life is slipping away from you and your last intentional physical act on earth is to give a clenched fist salute uh you know that to me is very persuasive 
Yeah, well, the the middle finger might have been <laughs> might have been a little bit more of a I'm statement. Sure he, I'm sure he would have done that too if he could. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you but know. it didn't happen. I thought well, then when I as a cop when I'd write something, I would I would think, okay, how is a defense attorney going to tear this apart? So when I was writing this book, I was thinking, okay, how is a conspiracy theorist going to look at this, or what would they say to it? And I looked at videos of of Oslo being shot, and I, the videos I saw, cannot see his hands clenching up in pain like that. When I saw the picture, I don't see that at all. So it wasn't from the shooting. It was his intentional physical act of giving the clenched fist salute like he had given two days earlier uh, on the third floor of the Dallas police headquarters. He did it again. And they, I, had, they had uncuffed him pretty quickly after he was did. Shot, right? Uh, and he wasn't going anywhere. They all knew that. So right. there's no harm in that. Absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, I, I think that's very, very compelling. It shows what what he also was was all about. Yeah. Now, now I don't know how exactly, you know, the human body would you know reacts after you're shot or you're on right. the verge of death or or passing right. out or whatever it is. Right. You know, of, of course, you know it could it, it could be an involuntary reaction, uh, you know, or it could have been he was in so much pain and that was just it. Or like you said, it could be interpreted as a as a big fu and you know. Uh, it now that you mention it, I want to say that I think I've seen some of these older socialist or communist right. um, books with the that fist symbol on the front of it. Yeah, you do. And in fact, in my book, I published one. Uh, I want to publish more, but as you know, as you start get, as as you publish books, people want to get paid for it. And I couldn't afford to spend several hundred dollars on each picture I want to put in my book, and it, I just couldn't do it. But I was able to get one, and if you Google this, you will see the clenched fist salute. I mean, it's just fascinating how that symbol is used for solidarity for a political purpose. Yeah, for sure. What you believe in. All right, well, let's get into what I assumed this entire book was going to be about before right. I actually read it. <laughs> right. And I, I, I did a show on this in the past about the PSE machine and, and George O'Toole. In his book, The Assassination Tapes, and his interpretation of a, well, pretty rudimentary computer voice stress analysis, you know, that could have been done in the 70s. We probably, you know, we all know what computers were like in the 70s. Sure. Um, and I and I said, I think during that show, that it'd be great if somebody could do an updated version with technology from today and compare it and see what happens. And that's exactly what you did in this book. So tell us a little bit about it. Well, there's a couple of things there. Let's go back to O'Toole. Uh, the PSE is a psychological stress evaluator. It was brand new. It was in its infancy. There was no metric by which to compare its scientific robustness or validity to it. Um, the problem I have with O'Toole, a couple of things. First of all, he took a three-day orientation course on the PSE then started to run these uh, tapes through his machine. Uh, there, he has no further training or experience with that, and that's huge. That's the first red flag. The second one is reading his books. He said that he generated more charts concerning Oswald, that um, people wrote letters confirming his analysis, yet those don't appear in his books. The only There's only one Oswald chart. It's, I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. That's it. Uh, the letters he says confirming his, his analysis are not published. When I contacted Dector, 
the guy who owned the company who owns them now said that they don't have any documentation at all. So that's lost mm. to posterity as well. So I have a lot of problems with tools work. Most of it is all conspiracy related, and and that's okay. And that's that's what that's what he was. He was a conspiracy theorist. In fact, in my book, I've been going into this a little bit later. I have a picture of Robert Grodin and George O'Toole, Mark Lane, Donald Freed, George Michael Evica, all those guys together. I call them the Rat Pack of conspiracy theorists because that's what they were doing. That's what they were. So right. I think that kind of tainted his results. Uh, for me, anyways, when I I am not an expert in the CVSA, and I recognize that. So I contacted the gentleman that does the computer voice stress analysis for my agency. He works for the man that invented the CVSA in the 80s. I gave – his name is Jerry Cry. I gave Jerry uh, one chart. I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. I said, Jerry, here's what I want to do. I want you to run this through the machine and see what you tell me. I didn't give him what the results should be or what I wanted. I say, let's see if this works. Yeah. And when he brought it back out, when he, showed, when he did his work and showed me, it was absolutely amazing how we get how he was able to, to discern that. For those uh, like me who are laymen with this, it's very simple. I'll put it this way. The human voice is like an AM and FM frequency. The uh, AM frequency is the audible frequency, as you can hear right now. The FM is the inaudible frequency. When we are being dishonest, that FM frequency disappears. And the disappearance of that FM frequency is what the CVSA measures. So is the CVSA do is it is it in use to this day? I mean, is it available to to absolutely really? Yes, sir. So I you know I took one for the sheriff's office, and in fact, in '99, uh, uh, actually, I think it's '98. I took one for the sheriff's office, and I answered all questions honestly, of course. And the lady goes, "Okay, now I want you to lie to me," and she's wearing glasses. I want you to say deny that I'm wearing glasses. So I lied on it. And at the end, she goes, okay, here it is. I said, can I see it? She's like, yeah. So all my questions have a um, a little Christmas tree-like diagram on it. The one where I lied, or she wanted me to lie on, looked more like hedges, looked more like a mountain. Right. And she goes, and here it is. I'm like, wow. That was my first experience with the CVSA. Um, and now it's, it's, I know like lie detector tests aren't admissible. Oh. I know PSE is not admissible. No, they're not. Is, is this admissible in court? No, no. There have been sometimes there have been some civil cases where it's where it's allowed, right? Um, but it's it's used by more than two thousand law enforcement agencies. The latest survey uh, said that it's more than ninety eight percent effective. Uh, there have been earlier surveys where it said that it wasn't very effective. Those are back in the eighties. Now that technology has changed and improved, uh, it has more than a ninety eight percent accuracy rate. Uh, and the, the thing here was I gave Jerry uh, nine audio clips from Dallas and four from New Orleans, and I published every single one. And there was one where I'm kind of at a, I'm kind of uh, unsure about, but I published all of them because I wanted people to see that, yes, this worked. And a lot of times you'll see he told the truth and he lied in the same breath. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see that, you know. Uh yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, I always saw this stuff on like the the, the newer, you know, c- crime shows on TV, and I was one. I was wondering, you know, I wonder if they actually use that. <laughs> but I, right. yeah, I guess they do. 
you know, oh, just, because- as, just as a tool to help them, you know, kind of know whether or not this guy's lying or not. And it's an investigative tool. And you're right. It's not allowed in courts. You know, they have to meet a very strict threshold for admit, uh, admitting evidence into court. So, yes, it's just a tool to use. And I want to, you know, I don't know why George O'Toole did what he did. He only used one graph. He didn't produce any other documentation at all. And I, I don't know why he did that. But in my book, I produce, I publish everything because I want people to see that there's nothing to hide, that this is what the, you know, the, the charts don't lie. It is what it is. For example, one of my charts was a policeman hit me. Completely truthful. We all know a police policeman hit him, more than one, yeah. and he was telling the truth. And the and the chart showed he was telling the truth on that one. You know, so you know, uh, for then when I did the chart for his New Orleans radio program, he says that he uh, was honorably discharged, achieving the rank of buck sergeant. We all know he he wasn't a buck sergeant; he was a private. That he said just about melted the CVSA charts. <laughs> because it showed huge levels of stress when he's talking about him being discharged as a buck sergeant. Yeah, why would he say that in public? Well, why, and that's the thing is, why would he do something? I think he was just trying to make himself bigger than what he was, trying to impress his listeners. And, you know, back then it was a lot harder to confirm someone's bona fides as it is now. Well, now, yeah. now, you know, you know how it is. You can get figure, you can get your information with a couple, you know, movement of your fingertips. And back then you really couldn't do it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I will say this. There was one chart which I'm kind of stuck on, and it said um, that he had members in this area for several months now. We, we asked, he was asked by Bill Stuckey about um, how many members does he have in the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And he said, we've had members in this area for several months now. It shows that he was not being deceptive with that response. So how do you reconcile that? We know he was the only member. So, you know, it's uh, the guy who did the voice stress, Jerry Crotty, said, if you believe it, it's not going to register on it. So if you really believe something, it's not going to show up as deception. So I don't know why, how, why that chart ended up that way. Um, well, if you count Lee Harvey Oswald and Alec Hydell, there's two uh, There you go. You know, <laughs> maybe he was thinking of the people that helped him distribute – um, the leaflets. Yeah, yeah both names. I printed. I have both their names in my book. Maybe he was thinking that. Maybe there were other members that we don't know about. I highly doubt that. Uh, but maybe there are other members that maybe showed interest, or you know, and we they've never been identified. I don't know. But either way, it showed no deception indicated. So that was a very interesting chart, and one I have a hard time reconciling. But you know, it, it is what it is. For whatever reason, it showed that he was not being deceptive. Well, the, the reason O'Toole probably didn't put those other charts in his book, uh, they probably didn't come out the way he wanted them to, I'm guessing. Well, and, and here's – I, I neglected to mention something very important about O'Toole's charts. Here's the crux of what I, the problem I have with O'Toole. The PSE, the Psychological Stress Evaluator, has two modes, mode one and two. One is for the male voice because we have bass in our voice. Mode two is for female voices. Because they are devoid of base. I, when I looked at O'Toole's chart of I didn't shoot anybody, no sir, it looked totally different than the, the CVSA chart that Jerry Crotty did for me for the same exact wording. I didn't know how to reconcile that. And when he showed it to the gentleman, his boss, who created the CVSA, 
his boss goes, I can tell you exactly what he did. He slowed the chart down. So what, what O'Toole did was when he was analyzing that, he did it in mode two instead of mode one. Mm. Um, when I had Jerry do that in mode two, it almost mirrored O'Toole's uh, chart. Now, I asked Jerry, well, the next best thing is let's go ahead and do get the PSE. Let's fire one of those babies up and do it. And we couldn't do it. The chart, the, the machines are so old, they're almost 50 years old. The surplus parts don't exist. The paper doesn't exist anymore. The styluses, you know, don't exist anymore. So uh, we couldn't do it. So the next best thing was to do a CVSA on that. And to confirm that analysis, when I ran um, the CVSA in mode two, it almost mirrored exactly what a tool did. So I, 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 in my mind anyways, I uh, proved that O'Toole used the wrong mode on the PSC. Whether that was intentional or not, I don't know. But he took a, he took a course on it, so he, he should have known better. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. And of course, you know, O'Toole's book had, it wasn't just about Oz, you know, Oswald. Right. He, he was running it on uh, cops. He was running it on witnesses and, and, and everybody else. He did. And, that's right. A follow-up, if you ever start writing the malcontent part two. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I would love to see some, you know, like some of the uh, other characters, you know, maybe analyze it a little bit, like Buell Frazier and his statements. Um, That's, you know. Only, well, I, only because mm-hmm. I, I think he's lying. And I'm not saying that to be, you know, like he's a malicious person. Right. But I'm thinking, he, I'm thinking he's lying about the size of the package. Um, and I don't know quite why yet, but, you know, if you're familiar with rifles at all, you're a hunter. He was a rifle owner and a hunter. I mean, you know what a rifle in a bag or a case or anything, you know, you know what it is. You know what I'm saying? Right. It has a certain shape and it's, you know, you can just look at it and be like, okay, there's a rifle in that, you know. Um, and I always thought that if, if, if he knew what, you know, what the reason was that he didn't actually cop to knowing that Oswald brought a rifle to work that day is if he was, if he was afraid of, you know, getting lumped in with him or because he knew uh, that Oswald brought a rifle, he would be in trouble as well. Uh, you know, I just never understood that. Well, it could be several, well, it could be several things. People lie because they're scared. That's one reason why they lie. Right. So maybe he knew he maybe he saw the outline rifle and maybe he didn't want to ask any questions. And once Kennedy was killed, he's like, Oh my God, maybe I could have prevented it. Maybe, you know, let's face the fact here. He was a common laborer. All right. So I don't want to hate to say this, but maybe they weren't exactly the brightest uh, bulbs in, in the bunch. So maybe he didn't pay much attention to it. Maybe he just didn't care or maybe he saw it. And didn't say anything about it. And then once the assassination happened, he realizes the situation is in, and you know the self-preservation mode kicked in. I, I, I don't know. And you know I want to do the other witnesses, but it was very expensive to get this test done. Yeah. And um, I couldn't do it. Uh, that's something. Yeah, and that's the other thing. I didn't do the witnesses just for the mere fact that if the Oswald chart in O'Toole's book is wrong, and I proved that it was wrong, that calls into question all the other charts he did. I don't trust a thing he did in this book. And I yeah. think I proved in my book that I replicated his erroneous charts and showed that his mythology, his methodology was wrong. So, you know, people who quote this book had to realize I proved that what he said, what he did is wrong. Right. Right. 
All right, let's get into a little bit about Detective Lavelle, because I know, and, and it's not very often that you could sit down with somebody who was in that position, in that time, in that place, to be part of history like this. So, so talk a little bit about your time um, with the, with Detective Lavelle. I'm friends with a Dallas police officer who knows Lavelle and takes him out to lunch every week. When I called my friend and said, hey, I'm thinking about writing a book on Lee Harvey Oswald, he goes, let me get you in touch with Lavelle because he has notes from that day that no one's ever seen, much less published. I'm like, great. So uh, we flew out there, took my son out there, my 10-year-old son at the time, and we met with Lavelle. And, you know, he was 98 at that time, and he was amazing. He sat there with my son, answered all his questions for an hour, uh, and just, you know, when I walked up, he was eating eggs. I looked through the window. I'm like, oh, he's eating eggs. I can't bother. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Everyone does it all the time. And he just had, you know, this amazing way, his amazing recall of the events that happened that day. And then once then I got his binder that showed, um, has personal notes. I, I just couldn't believe it. It was amazing. Yeah, and all this is reproduced in the book. So it is. And I, and I will say this, and I'm trying to get permission to publish it for my next book, which is about the radicalization of Lee Harvey Oswald, is I have copies of J, um, Officer J.D. Tippett's hookbook, which is the names of all the people he's arrested or come in contact with. And I have a copy of that, and I have a copy of the last three names he wrote down in his notebook before he came across Oswald. So that, yeah, and I have copy, and I have pictures of the bullets that were in his gun belt, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot more information I have out there that... Um, Hopefully, I can publish in my next book. But yeah, that trip was very, very, very fruitful. And as a side note, you know, a lot of people like to malign Jim. All those guys that malign him, I can bet have never met the guy. So it's one thing to read a book or to watch a documentary. Oh, he's lying or he's covering something up. But go out there to Garland, Texas, and go meet with him and talk about talk with him. And you realize this guy is absolutely 100% the real deal. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people give him crap because in that one picture, you know, the the famous picture yeah. where Ruby's shooting Oswald, he's kind of leaning back out of the way, like, "Hey, well, well heck yeah!" I mean, you know, you, you got a gunshot right there, and if, in that one picture, it looks like what's he doing? But if you watch it in 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 real time, it happens right. in a wink of an eye, and people react to gunshots differently, react to situations differently, as we all know. So there's nothing nefarious about that. It's just. Him reacting to a gunshot, and I would say this: if someone next to me was shot, I would probably, you know, be, be acting a little differently. Yeah, and you're handcuffed to the guy. I mean, you yeah. know, anywhere you got yeah. his, you got his hand in his in his pants, and uh, you know, you kind of leading him along, and you know, I don't know what people expect. What do they expect him to jump in front and take a bullet for the guy that just killed a cop and the president of the United States? I mean, right. I know I wouldn't. Right. Well, but he you know, reacted quickly enough, you know, to wrestle, you know, down afterwards. Not to mention, you've got a guy with a gun a foot away from you. So, I mean, what do you, it's just, we, we all come to expect this is what's going on. But at that time, you had no idea. So you're trying to react to an action. And that's, I think they did very well that, no, he didn't, was able not to get, start over. I think he did very well that. Ruby was not able to fire off any more shots just that one shot. Yeah, Ruby's lucky he didn't get he didn't get shot himself. I mean, there you go. My exactly. goodness. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. All right, Sean. Well, I think we, we gave everybody a good overview of it. Is there anything we left out you think we should, we should touch on? Uh, no, I mean, there's more charts and that kind of thing, but they can go on my website or, or grab the book and look at the charts and, and, and that. But, you know, I, I put examples of real-life criminal examples of how the CVSA works. So innocent, like uh, no deception-indicated responses, and then deception-indicated responses. So there's some sort of metric by which they can compare it to. Um, so they go there and look at these. I, I have, you know, Jerry had no dog in the fight. He was like, the charts are what they are, and this is what it is. I can't tell you why he said this, but this is what this is what here's deception and here's no deception. So I think it's a very, very interesting study, and I'm very surprised no one has done that prior to me. Yeah, you know, I think it's been think, all these years and all this technology, and you, you would think that that it would occur to somebody to do this again, but. I'm glad you did it because, you know, it's it's very eye-opening, I must say. It, well, thank you. I think everyone relied on Tool's analysis. Oh, that's been done already. Tool wrote the assassination tapes. It's been done, but it was done incorrectly. And if you look at my charts and look at the documentation, you'll see that I proved it was done incorrectly, that his book means absolutely nothing as far as that's concerned. Um, and I think I'm glad that it was done. You know, people may not you – know, oh, we, we can't trust the CBSA. Well, you know, it's – it is what it is. You can either accept it or not. Yeah, people are always going to say that. They say, oh. they say it about lie detectors. They said it about the PSE machine. They said it about the CVSA. Um, but, you know, it's got a pretty good uh, a pretty good uh, rate. I mean, yeah, 98%. 98%. According to one of the newest studies, 98% law enforcement agencies use them routinely, not only here, but around the world. Yeah. And I also have a letter from... There are only three computer voice stress master examiners in the entire world. One of them is dead. I was able to have one of them who, um, who went overseas and interrogated the Taliban and suspected terrorists and ran them through the CVSA um, write a letter in my book, which is published, stating that he's reviewed the analysis from Jerry Crotty and that, yes, he concurs with the analysis. So I've got people putting their necks on the line saying, hey, this is correct. You know, and uh, one other thing, yeah, forgot about this in your book, previously unpublished, Michael Payne. Uh, it, tell us a little bit about that, real quick. Well, you know, it's amazing what you'll get with just being nice to somebody. So I called. I, I was able to find Michael Payne's information. Actually, I called Ruth Payne, uh, and I got her answering machine. So I left a very nice message. Didn't hear from her for a couple of weeks. I didn't pester her. I called her again. Let the message, nothing. I'm like, well, okay, I'm not going to bother that lady anymore. She's getting on in years. Her son, Chris Payne, ended up calling me. And, you know, you know, if you're polite and respectful to somebody and not a complete lunatic, you're going to get somewhere. So I told him, here, here's a book I'm writing. Here's, you know, what I'm, the way it's going. And I would like this, this letter or this manuscript I heard that your dad wrote. And he goes, yes, I do have it. And he goes, as a matter of fact, give me your email and I'll uh, email it to you. I said, do I have your permission to publish? He's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, he and I went back and forth a couple of times. He gave me the manuscript. And it's very, very – basically, Oswald said, the only way you get anywhere is through violence. And, yeah, yeah Michael Payne had three or four deeply political and philosophical conversations with Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, and uh, it has been unavailable. It has never been published anyways, except for one line out of the seven pages on the manuscript, single-spaced. 
So I published that for the first time uh, because here's the other thing, Rob. Anybody can publish anything about the assassination. All they do is regurgitate what's already out there. Yeah. If I was going to write a book, I want something new. Uh, this behavior analysis has been done a little bit before, but not as much as I've done it. The computer voice stress analysis has never been done. And I want to add more documents to show you know, the mindset, if you can, of Lee Harvey Oswald. So uh, I thought it was very interesting to get his manuscript and, and, and to look at for someone to actually – spoke to and had conversations with Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, for sure. And you did exactly that. I mean, the, I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book because it's not like any other book out there, really. I mean, it, it doesn't push down your throat. Lee Harvey Oswald is guilty. I mean, it, it it gave you reasons why and examples why, and it ties everything together beautifully. And I think you did a great job, Sean. Well, thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. You know, the thing is, the, the lone nut conspiracy, the lone nut people and the conspiracy people have are at each other's throats. It gets very personal. It gets very nasty sometimes. And I even I even thank Robert Groden and uh, Jay Gary Shaw, who both who I totally disagree with, but I thank them for cooperating with me because there's no need to make it personal. This is what I, I mean. There could have been a conspiracy. Oswald maybe Me Mexico City might have been, you know, influenced by some rogue Cubans. I have no idea. There's no proof of that. But, you know, I don't totally discount that someone didn't influence him. It could have been a conspiracy. I just find no evidence of it. What I see all points to Lee Harvey Oswald. We'll never know every single thing about what happened. You can't know every single thing about any event. Uh, so I don't want to close that door on it. But this is what I see as a cop. And this is the evidence I've put out there. And if someone has something different to offer, then, and so be it. Uh, but this is what I, this is from my perspective what I think happened. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, you get these, you get the crazies on both sides, the lone nut conspiracy theories, and yeah. I, personally, I just want the truth and things that can be proven, you know, one way or the other. And I think you did a good job um, proving proving, you know, your theory. And I, I, it's hard to refute, man. I tell you what, it's hard to refute. Well, to refute. thank you. Without uh, sounding like a crazy conspiracy theorist. What I used were primary sources. Because if I use secondary sources, they're getting their sources from somebody else, and then you, you just lose the value of that. So primary sources as a history major is, is where I went to. And you know, the, the one final thing I have to say is the conspiracy that most conspiracy theorists talk about that occurred with Kennedy, that's – unrealistic that's being divorced from reality because that type of conspiracy has never existed before or since the kennedy assassination you can't get all the cops all the newsmen the med the doctors everybody to, to lie you can't and to fake all this evidence you can't you know i can't get the the government to deliver my mail right how, the, how are they gonna do all this stuff in a short amount of time it's just unrealistic it's, it's being divorced from reality and i think People really have to come back to reality and say, is this, is this feasible? Is this a reasonable? And for the most part, no, it's not. In yeah. my opinion, anyways. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's way too many moving parts if it's, you start thinking that everything is you know, part of the you can't do it. It's impossible. Yeah. Sometimes I think you, know, you just have to step out and look at it from a different perspective. Okay, is this reasonable? And then kind of work your way that way. All right, Sean, give everybody your website once more and where they can get the book again before we get out of here. It's seandegrilla.com, 
and it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and on my website as well. Right, and the last name is spelled D E G R I L L A. That's correct. Who can't spell very well? So. <laughs> yeah, it's not very, it's not a common spelling, no doubt about it. But I enjoyed writing Malcontent, and I'm glad you liked it, and I hope others like it as well. And uh, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been an honor. I really do appreciate it. No problem. And when you get that next book written, uh, give me a shout and you can come back on and we can talk about that. I look forward to it. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, Sean, you hang on for me. I'm going to close this out here. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my guest, Sean DeGrilla, for coming on the show. Make sure you check out his book, Malcontent. might change your mind, folks. Anyway, that's it for us today. Catch you next time. Peace. right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.